without doing any marketing you will see rtp payments flowing into the uh, the credit union accounts or the bank accounts because the customers are discovering they can go to paypal or venmo and type in this routing number and account number and draw down their funds from a closed wallet into their bank account so they have liquidity to to spend that money Welcome to the interview where each episode we have an exciting guest discussing a range of important topics to the fintech community today. I'm your host Daniel Cronin. In this episode we are joined by Rusiru Gunasena, a seasoned executive in fintech and SVP of product and strategy at the Clearinghouse. Rusiru, uh, delighted to have you. How are you doing today? Doing good. Thank you, Daniel. Super. Uh, Lucero, I'm super, super, super interested on the the layer of the fintech stack that you guys operate in, as um, I don't think it's clear to even some seasoned operators uh, how your work impacts theirs and how a, a small adjustment on your stack can lead to a long flagging of, of the fintech tail. But before we get into what you do on a daily basis and how that's contributing to the US and global fintech, I would love for you to just give our listeners a chance to learn a little bit more about your background. Sure. Th thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today and, and thank you for the opportunity, Daniel. My background is technology and payment tech and financial technology. Before the clearinghouse, I was with a processor who serviced thousands of uh, banks and credit unions in United States. I worked on their bill pay uh, side of the house and then stood up a division for real-time payments. Build a centralized payment hub connected with uh, Zelle and RTP both. The first processor to be connected to RTP was Jack Henry and they're still uh, leading the, the charge in how many financial institutions are live on the RTP network. That's my background, uh, pretty much financial technology and fintech uh, and payments. Sure, and just and cognizant, a lot of the listeners uh, of this podcast uh, are from the UK and Europe, and certainly, when, when the average entrepreneur or or operator in the space thinks of the US, often they're not thinking of the US; they're thinking of the geographical and technological outliers at New York and Silicon Valley, the uh, the East and the West Coast, respectively, and it's known for being almost light years ahead from a technological standpoint that, than the rest, certainly the rest of the US and, and in many respects, the rest of the rest of the West. Maybe you could make a case that China is technologically advancing at a more accelerated rate. However, and I hope you don't mind me pointing this out, it, it payments is very different in the States. There's, uh, I, I, know, I, I noticed a major stasis in payment technology in the US compared to the, the other elements of technological progress. For example, the single European payment area has had SEPA instant for a number of years now. The UK implemented the first um, low value real time payment system 10 years ago, roughly now. Whereas stuff, stuff in the US is, check, check is still a huge, a hugely relevant mechanism of, of a transaction exchange in the US. Can you talk to the European and, and, and the, the UK players in fintech on why you feel the States has been slower to adopt a real-time payment ecosystem. 
I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Happy to do so. And, and also my background is somewhat global. I have some uh, roots in the United Kingdom and also in the East Asian subcontinent coming from originally from Sri Lanka. So I travel quite a bit across the globe and also collaborate with a lot of uh, industry partners and friends and across whether it's central banks or fintechs or payment technology providers. So when you really contrast across the globe, different regions and what they are emerging technologies, where they are in the payment technology and, and that evolution, uh, there are some clear differences between what we deal with in US versus some of the other jurisdictions. I think the sheer size, uh, when you look at how many financial institutions are, uh, both banks and credit unions, who also then have a lot of technology partners who they partner with, fintechs, platform providers, co-providers, to really enable and fuel the payment ecosystem, it is quite complex. So there are quite a bit of those technologies and certainly in the co-infrastructure, there are some in inefficiencies uh, inherent when you look at legacy technologies for years, which has been built. So it takes time, but they're continuing to modernize those technologies. Even uh, some of the core platforms are now moving to the cloud, real-time processing, moving away from batch. So you see that. I think eventually you will see that inefficiencies moving out of the marketplace and then efficient alternatives coming into the, the ecosystem. The other real difference is there is no mandates per se, either from a central authority or a central bank saying you need to do this, you need to do this by and such a date. And if you look at India, how they are sucking up cash out of the system, you can see some of the legacy tech was not the burden. They are building net new technology and moving fast and they are sucking out cash out of the system. And it is also revolutionizing the, the commerce, whether it's a street vendor now who don't have to deal with cash, the money goes straight into their account. And only thing they need to do is provide the goods and services, whether it's making tea or making those on the street, they can do that. So I, I can see that rapid evolution and growth in some of those jurisdictions, but the US is also getting there the real-time payments network uh, we started over six years ago now is you know growing month over month volume and the adoption the new use cases are being implemented so certainly that's kind of uh, how i would compare and contrast against other jurisdictions interesting point i'd never really considered the role of a of an independent arbitrator um in in the uk you have independent regulators and then the the participant regulator so Bank of England filtering down to the um, the commercial banks themselves. In Europe, you've got the ECB. Then you have the uh, the central banks of the constituent states, and then I think it's the, the EU's largely pl playing a role in that. And this it is, is much more famous in other industries in standardising access to goods and services across the EU. The most famous one recently would be the EU forcing Apple to change their charging uh, connectors to the, to the EU standard. And they do much the same in payments. How do you feel the role of the Fed differs uh, in America when, when 
trying to encourage innovation in, in the space. Uh, the Fed is a private entity for those who aren't aware. I was shocked when I realized that the, the Fed wasn't a, a government-owned entity, which it would be if it was in Europe. What, what's the role? What's the difference in role there? I would say we are also still highly regulated, but uh, safety and security is one of the top priorities for all of us when we operate payment networks. So there is regulation, there is audit and compliance activities. So Fed also uh, works hand in hand with the clearinghouse on making sure the payment networks are safe and secure. And also there is a very fair way of implementing uh, certain feature functionality across consumers and businesses and everybody have access to the networks <clears throat> we build and operate. That was one of the basic premise on the RTP network implementation six years ago uh, when we implemented to make sure every bank and credit union have access to RTP. And today, large percentage of uh, banks and credit unions who are live, over 80% are community banks and credit unions. So um, Fed works uh, hand in hand uh, with us on making sure that, and they certainly commend us for that role we play in the payment ecosystem in the United States. Also, the Clearinghouse looks at ahead of what's coming, what are the emerging technologies, and making sure we collaborate with the Fed. Uh, we want to certainly collaborate and do the right thing in the benefit of consumers and businesses, the financial ecosystem, the banks and credit unions, to make sure that we align on certain technologies or uh, networks we build, the feature functionality we build. So Fed also plays a role on that. But there are a lot of agencies when we say we, we, we use the word in very generality when we say Fed, but there are multiple agencies, whether they look at consumer, commerce, fair treatment of citizens uh, when it comes to the payment ecosystem. So there are multiple agencies who look at different aspects of uh, fintech payments and fair competition. Um, so I would say they play a very critical role in, in that as well. That's interesting. I was wondering if we could dumb it down a little bit for this portion of the podcast. I, w I would say a lot of operators, some seasoned, some, some fairly green, wouldn't really know the constituent components of a payment and, and which actors are involved. I was wondering if, if, for, if for a moment we could effectively deconstruct a payment for the layperson if we could run through the anatomy of a payment so let's say you Rosiru want to send me ten dollars I'm based in California you're based in New York you bank with bank in New York Mellon I bank with I don't know a Californian community federal savings bank or something like that how many actors are involved in, and I know this accordions out depending on the participants, but on average, how many actors are involved in my money getting to you? And where do you guys sit? I like to break down the payment to a very simplest form, just like you, you asking. Payment is a payment is a payment. It goes from a sender to a recipient through a medium of delivery. So you really have a sender who sends that payment through their financial institution, through a 
medium, which is a payment network. Let's call RTP, the real-time payments network, and which then tells the receiving bank, your bank, to give that $10 to you, and the bank will credit you that payment. So you are the recipient, and between the sender and the recipient, there is the two financial institutions they belong to, or it could be the same financial institution. We both bank at uh, or a credit union, and then the network in the middle. I think that's the basic touch points of a payment flow from a sender to a recipient. But then there are the uh, different use cases or, or paths you could take. Again, based on the network, it could be different. Uh, but I'm talking about the real-time payments, the most simplest, going from a sender to a recipient through the network. Okay. I, I just want, I, I really want to dig deeper on this because I don't think enough people know what actually happens. So, okay. like there you said, sender-receiver, potentially using the same bank. For the sending bank to send an instruction to their real-time scheme, is it data? Are they saying... Please send this. Do they need to have a prefund at that network? Yeah. Um, for like, uh, unless you break it down like that, I, I think we we run the risk of um, homogenizing the experience. If there is a prefund at the network, then it is a third bank account, whether you like it or not. That's involved in the processing of this transaction, right? How granular? Um, how granular can we can we make this for listeners? If we take it another step down and break down that payment flowing through RTP network, you can first look at my instructions to the bank to send the $10. The first thing the bank will do is take that $10 out of my account and put it in a GL account. So therefore, it's good funds when I'm instructing and RTP is a credit push. I am authorizing the payment. It's not like somebody else can come and do a debit like ACH. RTP is always authorized by the sender. So it's really um, yeah. secure from that perspective. I, I send, not you take. And GL, for listeners who don't know, is general ledger. Correct. Correct. So it's a account set up in the bank where they do the balancing and reconciliation to hold my funds in that to make sure that they have debited my account, taken the $10 out. And then the instructions come to the network. And the network at that point of time, let's say you took BNY Mellon as an example on, on my side, the network uh, will take that $10 out of the BNY Mellon account. The and right? It, it's, it's the the pre-funded joint account we maintain the positions on. It's one account in the New York Fed. So each bank has contributed a pre-funded balance. Okay. So I really want to like spell this out for everybody. So you're debiting the client account, the, the registered user, me. They're crediting a GL account. There's a separate account that they have pre-funded at the Fed. And they're sending a message to say, you can debit 10. Correct. And when you say they, the bank, right, the participant has, they have an account 
we we maintain that joint account in the New York Fed, and we take that ten dollars out of the BNY position, and then credit that to your California bank. Fed right? network account. Uh, yeah, it's a joint account. We maintain the positions, right? So your okay. your your bank has a position. Now it goes up by ten. BNY Mellon went down by ten, and your bank went up by ten, and then the instructions to your bank is to give you that $10. By that time, your bank knows that that $10 is good funds and that $10 will be in their position in the joint account we maintain. And then they are uh, clear to give you that $10. They'll credit your account immediately. Okay. And so when are the two participant banks balancing balancing the book here in in real time or they balance it it is in real time so that's the clear difference between a rtgs true real-time gross settlement system like rtp or it's just a messaging and the customer or the business think they got the money in their account and in reality they might have the account but there's settlement risk really the money did not exchange between the financial institutions they exchange money either through ACH or other means, hours later, days later, uh, and, and the money only moves then. So it's really a messaging system. The money moves through a different medium, but doesn't really move immediately. It's not real-time gross settlement. That's the key difference between RTP and some of the other wallet or messaging networks, which appears to be real-time to the the consumer, but it's not true real-time gross settlement. Okay, okay. And who's the real benefit for here? Is it the end consumers or is it the banks? There are benefits for RTGS. There are there are benefits to all parties. Um, if you really look at it, you don't have day one, day two, you know, plus day one, plus day two processing. And also you get the immediate confirmation. So it could be the recipient has the immediate confirmation of funds when they are delivering goods. If you look at uh, earn wage access or immediate uh, wage access, Uber driver getting paid today for them to pump gas for them to work tomorrow. So there are benefits all the way from financial institutions to consumers and businesses using RTP. There are multiple use cases which are up and coming, which are very rapidly growing. Um, defunding wallets, we have seen that as a very prominent use case from day one. When a, a community bank or credit union goes live on RTP, without doing any marketing, you will see RTP payments flowing into the, uh, the credit union accounts or the bank accounts because the customers are discovering they can go to PayPal or Venmo and type in this routing number and account number and draw down their funds from a closed wallet into their bank account so they have liquidity to to spend that money. So there is benefits all the way around whether it's financial institutions, consumers or businesses. And what's the typical pre-fund? In UK and Europe you get Depend, depending on volume, there's usually an, an expectancy of between three and five days of average payment flow. Is it the same in the States? It depends on the, the, the size of the institution, the volume of payments. Um, there is a calculation we do 
and recommend a, a certain amount of uh, pre-funded balance to maintain in the account. They closely monitor that. We closely monitor and we work with our participants to make sure there is enough funds in the account based on their historical volume as well as uh, future forecast. And the pre-funded balance is uh, the exercise of all those activities. Okay. And so now that we've kind of sliced the different segments of a payment in, in RTP, what does the clearinghouse do? Why does it exist? Um, does it, uh, I ask a provocative question, does it need to exist? Because uh, I'd be very keen to hear your answer. Absolutely. So the clearinghouse has existed even before the Fed uh, was uh, formed. Clearinghouse was established in uh, 1853, and we have really uh, helped the payment ecosystem for over 170 years. We currently operate three major networks, one being the EPN, which is the ACH equivalent, and the CHIPS network, which is the Fedwire equivalent and the latest payment network, which we have been operating for over six years, is the RTP, Real-Time Payments Network. We also have a check clearing solution uh, we operate. So if you really look at the role of the clearinghouse uh, for over 170 years and uh, continue to be, is to really do innovation in the payment ecosystem. Uh, throughout its history, uh, the clearinghouse has been at the forefront of that payment innovation, uh, introduce various systems and technologies, enhance the safety, security, speed, efficiency of payments flowing through the uh, the, the United States uh, payment ecosystem. Okay, and um, it has been some time since we um, since we originally spoken. It wasn't originally a note I took, but I will touch on it now because. Uh, Donald Trump uh, did an all caps type on it. Uh, he said something along the lines of if uh, if slash when I'm president, I will can uh, any plan for a central bank digital currency. What are the thoughts on, on given the fact that Bitcoin has been approved for ETF in the States? On the one hand, you've got a bunch of people saying it is the future. Uh, it's just a matter of time. And it is the ultimate disintermediation tool for a company like TCH. On the other hand, you have a future uh, future president saying there ain't going to be no way this happens on my clock. What, what are your thoughts around it? So that's another function we, as the clearinghouse, continue to do uh, in addition to the settlement and clearing of the payment networks I mentioned. We also help with developing standards, right? The, the clearinghouse often leads or participates in development of industry standards to facilitate secure and efficient payments, uh, then advocacy and regulation. We work with banking associations and also uh, we represent uh, banks and credit unions uh, in the discussions when it comes to regulatory matters, uh, advocate policy, uh, research and analysis. So when you look at all that what we do in addition to operating payment networks for settlement and clearing, that's a major part. So when you look at what are those emerging technologies and when you talk about CBDC, what I would tell is 
today our dollar is already digital and there are certain jurisdictions where a CBDC might make sense yet to be discussed and, and really evaluated what value that will bring into the U.S. payment ecosystem. I think it's a, a continuing active uh, discussion and evaluation we all are going through to see what role would a CBDC play in a U.S. payment ecosystem. I have seen some jurisdictions uh, either for control of payment, control of currency, they favor a CBDC. I don't think that's one of the drivers for us here in the United States. Uh, I would think if there are benefits, uh, that those clearly those benefits need to outweigh the cost. And also, how does that play in an ecosystem of thousands of financial institutions? Is it CBDC for interbank settlement or is it CBDC for retail? consumer commercial payments. I think those are things which we need to first answer before we get to a, a definite yes or no. Uh, there are a lot of things to be considered what, how impact, uh, how that will impact. Also how that will impact the dollar as a global currency supporting e-commerce e across the globe. I think that needs to be, because technology, when you talk about CBDC, the other thing you cannot ignore is the part technology plays. Technology plays a huge role in that. And then how do you administer uh, a digital currency across the globe has to be also evaluated. Then again, I think I will end the answer of this with where we start always is the safety and security, right? So with a centralized CBDC, we need to definitely take safety and security as an uttermost uh, high priority in, in considering a CBTC or any other digital currency, what's the safety and security? How do we protect the consumers and businesses and the citizens of the United States? In the beginning of the answer, you mentioned there may be some jurisdictions where it makes sense. Were you talking uh, intra-regional United States or were you talking globally somewhere else? Uh, globally, somewhere else, for sure, you can see how some of the jurisdictions would prefer a digital uh, currency or a, even a central bank digital currency to have more control, uh, administer monetary policies in those countries or in those regions. So I would say uh, depends on the jurisdiction and their uh, key motivators and drivers, it might make sense for them in those regions. And does it impact you in any way the um, the, the the willing or unwilling uh, use of the US dollar as, as basically an outsourced economic stabilizer? So Argentina, great example. Nobody trade. Nobody wants to trade in pesos internationally because of the the historic high barriers to uh, conversion imposed by. Texas uh, conversion rates uh, and inflation and melt the value of the domestic currency. So traditionally, we would see a lot of businesses trading in um, US dollars where they possibly could, either setting up a, a small business in the States and using them there, or increasingly stable coins. So anywhere, it seems any country that I spot that has high inflation at, at the moment, there's a, some successful startup that basically spins up a USDC stable coin and allows that country to effectively 
stand on the shoulders of the American economy to stabilize its own trade. How does that filter back into the um, uh, the U.S. economy via you? Is it is it does it does it make any difference at all to the clearinghouse? The fact that um, that there's a huge increase in volume of U.S. dollars happening off book effectively through through the U.S. Uh, through the adoption of a USDC. I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say it's off book. Um, we play a major role even in the global. Uh, payment space, especially with our chips network as well, which was the Y equivalent. So we move a lot of global payments. And to your question on the dollar and, and uh, the, the dollar being used as a medium, absolutely, I think dollar still continues to be a very strong currency and a preferred currency for global commerce. And it certainly fuels the payment ecosystem, it strengthens our economy and our presence and also the clearinghouse's role in that payment ecosystem to move payments in the global commerce, to enable global commerce, we move payments uh, globally. So definitely the strong position of the dollar and continuing to be used as the top medium for commerce is, is a great, great uh, asset for all of us. Makes sense. And and so what do you view as a, a threat to the RTP network? Um, what else is out there that could erode market share of, of, of the transaction landscape? I wouldn't say it's a threat, but there is always emerging technologies and emerging payment mediums. I wouldn't even call them sometimes networks, but sometimes it appears like it's real time. Sometimes it's technologies who which are emerging, which we keep a close eye on. What are those emerging technologies? How how are these technologies going to revolutionize or change the payment ecosystem? And then what are these emerging trends in um, moving payments uh, or delivering a payment from a sender to a recipient or service a particular niche use case? So we continue to look at what are those emerging use cases which are, which has a much higher value proposition on the RTP network and work with those stakeholders, whether they are financial institutions or their customers, whether they are fintechs. So we collaborate with the industry across all these stakeholders to make sure that those technologies, those um, use cases which they are innovating on uh, payment rails are fit for RTP and RTP is ready to help them move those funds in real time. So it's really a enabler, I would say, when we look at collaborating with the stakeholders, uh, look at, looking at emerging technologies and then building it onto the RTP network. I really look at them as enablers, which um, keeps us on our toes and to be at the forefront of payment innovation and, and servicing those use cases. RTP network uh, for the last six years has evolved very much. And uh, if you look at from the start to today, we have come a long way. We have uh, implemented new use cases, continue to implement new use cases and work with all those stakeholders to uh, to build and support uh, their their commerce. Makes sense. So have there been any trends that you guys have spotted over the past, I don't know, five, 10 years where you thought, okay, this is something 
we are going to have to embrace whether we like it or not. And then prior to it really, um, work, work beginning, it's faded away. Ha has there been any one-hit wonders or anything that you would have said 10 years ago, this is the future, and then it just turns out to be a flash in the pan? I think one of the trends is in top, you know, integrations. How do you uh, operate with different technologies, payment platforms, and different players in the ecosystem? If you look at five, ten years ago, fintechs might have been viewed as a threat to the ecosystem, but now they are really enablers fueling the innovation and the growth of the payment ecosystem banks, credit unions, and all other technology providers, including the clearinghouse, uh, looks at uh, fintechs to be an enabler and we collaborate, we listen, we share ideas, and we fuel the innovation in the payment ecosystem. So integration has been a key, key enabler, whether you call it APIs or other means of integration have played a key role in that. Uh, scale, I think scale is also important we look at scale to make sure that what we build can scale across thousands of financial institutions, tech providers, fintechs, and consumers and businesses. I would say that's also uh, a very much of an important thing. Uh, safety and security, uh, I think uh, whether it's uh, cyber threats or safety and security of a payment ecosystem is very important. We try to be on top of that and make sure our networks and what we build is very secure, have the right warranty frameworks and all the other processes needed to support the, the stakeholders in the payment ecosystem. Okay. And um, do you, you say you view fintechs as enablers. Can you just break that down? Why were they seen as a threat? And now why has that perception shifted? I think... Initially, when the fintechs or any startup sometimes come and try to disrupt a certain use case or process or a certain element of a business, uh, whether it's a payment, whether it's a back-end process, how they service their customers, or even servicing of returns, whether it's accounts payable, account receivables in that ecosystem, they might gain some market share, they might come and disrupt a existing technology. Take Kodak as an example, right? Once you really see the value in what they do, what they bring to the table, and you start collaborating with them, you see them not as a threat, you see them as an enabler, you see them as fueling that innovation, and how do you learn, how do you partner, how do you uh, help each other to fuel that innovation and the growth in the ecosystem. That's how I saw firsthand this moving uh, from my early days of community bank and trade union interactions to today playing the role here at uh, the clearinghouse. Uh, I've seen that mindset shifting very rapidly. Today, banks and trade unions work with lots of fintechs and technology providers to enable that. The other most important thing the fintechs do is sometimes as a startup they have less rigor so you have to be you know really take that into account how do you put the rigor the right safety security and the regu regulatory aspects into uh, what they bring to the table but they're good at innovating at the early stages very quickly with very 
a finite number of resources, so they move fast. So that's also another good thing. Sometimes you can innovate faster. That's why even some of the product ideation efforts within even a large corporation happens um, in an incubator team. Similarly, the fintechs have uh, less constraints. They are flat organized. They innovate very quickly. So those are kind of benefits which they bring to the ecosystem. And then sometimes they end up into a much uh, larger ecosystem player or, or a candidate of acquisition and become really mainstream technology. Okay. And um, w when you say enablement, what are they enabling? Of the proliferation of the of the scheme, choice for the consumer, choice for a business. When you say enabler, who who's getting what? All, all of them, all of the above, and including even increasing the efficiency, uh, whether it's back office uh, operations of a financial institution, whether it's operations of a business. If you look at some of the accounts receivable, accounts payable platforms, which fintechs have built to streamline that process of a business, it's very different from five or 10 years ago to today. And it's really enabling all of those stakeholders, not just one. Again, depends on which fintech, which technology and which part they are addressing or which, what is their focus area. I think it depends, but I would say it's all, all stakeholders and all players are benefiting from it. Okay. And just coming towards the end of, of, of the podcast, what I'd really love to know is what you think the, the future of this looks like. So if we, if, if we just look at it from a, a first principles point of view, it's how long does it take funds to get from point A to point B? on the speed scale on the participant scale it's how many people need to be involved in that payment long term you, you you could make a case the fewer the better and that would be combined with the third axis the cost long term you want it to be as cheap as humanly possible i feel speeds nearly speeds nearly done in the limit it's certainly in the UK now, um, if I send my friend 50p, he'll get a notification on his phone, 50p received. Maybe it doesn't arrive as quickly in the background, but broadly that's done. How long does it take an average payment to uh, arrive in the consumer's bank on the RTGS schemes in the States? Uh, on the RTP network, it's a matter of seconds. It is immediate. So there's not much more you can do there, right? Even it le leaps and bounds of innovation might get it to milliseconds, and uh, but... I guess who cares at at that point? It it just it's it's not life changing for the uh, for the sender and recipient. So if and you might challenge me on that, you might say one second it is important. But looking forward in ten years, what innovation needs to happen for this to be a, a thriving ecosystem? Has it already happened? Where where do we go from here? You you are correct. I think at this point of time, it's not the settlement time it takes from you know and reducing it from 10 seconds to five seconds i think it's now how do we fuel the network and bring on new use cases and new adopters it's about increasing the reach as well as 
bringing new volume of payments so that we could really have uh, ubiquity across the network. We already have the technical reach with all the processes being live. It's a matter of bringing the institutions now live onto the network because the technical connectivity is done. It's just pretty much turning them on onto RTP. So we are, com we are concentrating on that as one of the key priorities in years to come. So I would really say uh, the real-time payments growth from a standpoint of reach and volume on new use cases uh, is definitely going to be the priorities. The time still can continue to can um, improve, but uh, it is quite sufficient to fuel today's use cases and the needs. I don't think in the immediate, uh, it has to be milliseconds. Uh, safety and security needs to continue. Innovation in payment security, you know, whether it's biometric authentication or advanced encryption, we need to uh, make sure people are widely adopting RTP systems. That way, they are adding the layers of protection against fraud, increasing consumer trust in digital payments. I think education is another key undertaking we need to continue to do educating consumers and businesses of what real-time payments, what benefits they can uh, give, and what are the do's and don'ts of real-time payments um, is, a, is a major focus as well. Super interesting. Uh, Rusiru, is, is there anything else you'd like to add uh, on, on the subject? Uh, anything you'd like to opine on or, or something you'd like to shine a light on in, in the ecosystem or at, at, at Clearinghouse? We'd, we'd love to hear. We touched on this, but I want to at least put a finer point on it when we talked about fintechs and other uh, players in the ecosystem. I would say collaboration between traditional and emerging players is very important. Uh, we take that very seriously, whether it's traditional financial institutions, fintechs, startups, technology companies. They all can yield new products and services, leveraging the uh, strengths of the RTP for broader use cases. So it is very important for us to collaborate and work with all those ecosystem players to make sure that we bring the benefits to the consumers and businesses as a whole. And so I, I suppose my last question would be on that. What is the US journey for adoption of, of this? Is it inertia uh, and slowly, slowly but surely and inexorably people will move to this because it's faster and cheaper? Or is there some other inhibitor to, to a 100% adoption of this service? I would like to say that we say payments, not get rid of the real-time word in front of payments. And it's a few years before we get there, but we are moving in that direction. In the next two to three years, I would see very rapid growth and adoption of real-time payments. Today, you can see even some employers saying, you know, work today and get paid today. And uh, whether it's commerce, delivery use cases, disbursement, whether it's business to a consumer or consumer paying bills, uh, we have really gone into uh, requests for payment adoption. Uh, we see that revolutionizing the bill pay use case so that the consumer is in much better control than a ACH debit coming out of your account and you have no control over. 
a request for payment going through the payment secure payment banking channels into your banking apps to authorize a payment is also going to revolutionize so i would say it is definitely fueling the growth of rtp and, and in the next two to three years you will see that growth Rusira, uh, you've been a fantastic guest. Thank you for your insights, and uh, it's been great to hear a little bit more about the uh, the inner workings of how payments works in the US. Thank you very much. We hope we'll have you on as a guest sometime soon again. Thank you, Daniel. It's a pleasure.